Man, don't you wish things would just go back to normal? No more masks, no more COVID, all this stuff. Wouldn't it be great if things would just go back to normal? Well, I have a provocative question for you this morning. What if normal wasn't all it was cracked up to be? And here's what I mean by this. I've been to Mexico about 10 times, and invariably I go with someone who is new to Mexico, who's never been before. And oftentimes, one of those people will say something like this. I am so surprised to see that people in Mexico are happy. They're shocked. They're shocked especially when they see that someone in poverty can be happy. And I am not surprised, not because I've been to Mexico 10 times, but because in 2013, I stumbled upon a report called the UN World Happiness Report. And in this report, every year, the UN surveys countries all around the world, and they use these quantifiable objectives to decide which countries are more happy. And in 2013, Mexico was ranked higher in happiness than the United States. And what you're looking at now is the results of a poll done by Gallup called the Gallup Wellbeing Poll. And the United States isn't even in the top 10, not even in the top 20. And so for this reason... I know that there are other reasons to be happy than somebody's relative wealth or the government that you have or whatever else you may think that may be. And that's why I love going to Mexico. And that's why I love other people going to Mexico because all their conceptions about what happiness may be or what normal may be, God uses that trip and that time in Mexico to challenge those ideas of what normal could or should be. And I actually wonder if God is using COVID-19 to do that now. We are in a series uh, looking through the book of Exodus. And I want to impress a point upon you before we dive into our text today. And that is this, that the story of Exodus is our story. The story of Exodus is the story of the follower of Jesus. Just like the Exodus, we have been delivered from slavery and bondage. Just like in Exodus, we have a deliverer. His name is Jesus. He is like the second Moses. And just like in Exodus, we are going to a promised land. And all throughout the New Testament, you see this, that the writers are impressing upon us that we are not at home in this world, that we are on a journey from one place to the next. In First Peter He calls us sojourners and exiles. In Hebrews, he talks about the people of God as yearning for a better country. And so we are on our own exodus. We are on our own journey. I want you to keep that in mind as we read our text today. But I am getting ahead of myself. We are getting ahead of ourselves because as we have been reading through the book of Exodus, we haven't got to the point where the Hebrews are actually delivered from slavery. So let's read that today. In Exodus chapter 7, let's see where and how God begins to deliver the people of Israel from their slavery. Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. If you uh, have your Bible, you can read that with me. You can read along on your screens. Here it is. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, 
And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, the story continues on for three more chapters to talk about the plagues that God brings upon the people of Israel. If you are not familiar with this story, let me encourage you to read it. Go ahead and read Exodus chapters 7 through 10 and become familiar with this story. And I could focus on a lot of different aspects of this. I could focus on um, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and what that might mean. I could focus on the story of how God is using Moses and Aaron. But what I really want to focus on is actually these ten plagues and the significance of them. God sends one plague after another as Pharaoh continues to insist that the Hebrews stay and not to let them go. He sends one plague after another, beginning with the plague against the river Nile as it turns blood red, the heart of the Egyptian land. And then a trio of plagues, first the frogs from the water, then the gnats from the dust, and the flies from the air. And I call this a trio because uh, you see this, water, earth, and sky. It's almost as if nature itself is spewing forth pestilence on the Egyptians. And at this point, the plagues are a, a mere inconvenience and annoyance for the Egyptians, but it begins to get harsher, begins to affect their life and their lifestyle, because the next plague is on their livestock, their cows, their donkeys, the things that they need to do the work that they do begin to die. Then boils strike them. And boils would have been something that they would have considered completely unclean, especially for religious purposes. They would have been unpure because of these boils. Then the hail. The hail comes and affects their crops, their, their, uh, their, especially their crops that are for clothing. And then you have what's left of that, the crops for food, destroyed by the locusts. And then the penultimate uh, plague, darkness, falls upon the land. So really to talk about these plagues, I feel like we need to dive into Egyptian culture to understand the significance of what is going on here and what God is doing to the Egyptians and what he's doing to deliver the Hebrews. In ancient Egyptian culture, they had what was called the ma'at, or you could, have, you could call it their, their, their way of life, the Egyptian way. And ma'at was kind of this cosmic order. It was order. It was balance, peace, prosperity, justice, morality. As a matter of fact, the Egyptians believed that when an Egyptian died... They went through something called the weighing of the heart, and they would stand before the tribunal of gods, and they would have their hearts weighed, and and the Egyptian was to make these 42 negative confessions and to say things like, I did not murder, I did not steal, I did not commit adultery, I did not disobey the gods. 
This was Ma'at. Their lives were judged by Ma'at. And Ma'at included the pantheon of the gods. The gods were interwoven into every aspect of Egyptian life. So that everything that was important to Egypt had some God that oversaw it and kept order over it. So, for example, the Nile wasn't just the river Nile. The Nile was a gift from the god Hapis. And childbearing wasn't just childbearing. Childbearing was overseen by the god Heket, who was represented by a frog. Fertility, likewise, was overseen by the god Apis. Crops and vegetation were protected by the god Min. And the very sun itself was represented by the god Amun-Ra, who was the great god, who was the god over all the other gods. This was the Egyptian normal. This was the Egyptian way of life, Ma'at, that integrated everything that determined how they lived their lives, the cosmic way. Now, we might look upon the Egyptians sort of down our noses and say, well, you know, those pantheistic, polytheistic guys with the, the number of gods, we might look down on them. But the fact is that a lot of amazing things came out of Egyptian culture We have architecture that has lasted thousands of years that we still are impressed by. They made advances in medicine and science that were were incredibly impressive for the time. And yet, there was something rotten at the core of Egyptian culture. And how do I know that? It's right under our noses. It's right here in the text. The fact that the Egyptians were enslaving an entire people group. Whatever else you could say that was good about Egyptian culture, here was the central issue that made their way of life, their their, their, uh, morality, all that kind of stuff, suspect. They were hypocrites. And so when God tells Moses and Aaron that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am, that I am, that I am the all-sufficient one, the originator of all that is good and beautiful and right, he is saying that their way of life is bunk. Their gods are not true. And we see this. So that we see that what we see in the plagues is not just a judgment on the Egyptians, it is actually a judgment on their gods. So the Nile, when it is turned blood red, it is almost as if uh, Hafiz is bleeding. When Heket uh, fails them, we see that because the frogs come out of the water. Um, Hafiz has failed them when the livestock dies. Amun-Ra himself has fled when the sun does not appear. And because it is a judgment on their gods, it is a judgment on their way of life, it is a judgment on their normal, actually. And I have to wonder if we as Americans have our own ma'at, our own kind of cosmic order. Maybe it's informal, maybe it's not recognized together, but I wonder if we do have a a ma'at, the American way, you might say. And I especially began to wonder this at the beginning of this year because even as our country becomes more and more secular, our religious impulse doesn't go away. We are human beings and thus we, by our nature, 
have to find something to worship, something to praise, to venerate, to give that part of ourselves away to. And so what was that? What is that as Americans that we worship even if we do not worship Yahweh? And so at the beginning of this year, I stumbled on a book called The Altars That We Worship At. It's written by these three sociologists who looked at the landscape of American culture and identified six things that they saw had the religious kind of feel to them, that, that bore religious marks. And these six things are this, body and sex, big business, entertainment, politics, sports, and science and technology. And each of these six things bore its own kind of things. They, they have mythologies, uh, ethics, doctrines, um, uh, rituals, institutions, and experiences. Now think about this. We have temples that dot our landscape. And, and many of you who have entered these temples, they, when you go in, they are dark. And you sit down and you have this experience upon which you are are transcended into these experiences of joy and drama. We call them movie theaters. We have sacred documents that are analyzed and and argued over and held to, and we call these the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. We have um, rituals that we adhere to. We have idols. We call them idols, actually. We call them also athletes. And you can look at our landscape, uh, the the cultural landscape of the United States of America, and identify these these things that take and capture our hearts that indeed may be altars that we worship at. Even those of you who are here, those of you who are watching, these might be the altars that we worship at. And I have to ask, how is that serving us as a country? I've heard it said that what you worship is what you become. So what are we becoming as a country? When I look at our country right now, I don't think we are doing well. I see division I see that we are barely even able to hold a conversation with one another, that we lack humility, that we lack grace and charity for one another. I see the generations divided, young and old. I see that when issues of racial inequality come up, we don't even know how to talk about what is right and what is just. I see that when we are talking as a, as a country about what is safe and where, how to do health and safety, that on the one hand you have people who are gripped in fear, and on the other hand you have people who have incredible lack of love for their neighbor. And brothers and sisters, we are not doing well as a country, and I have to wonder if it is because of the altars that we worship at. And it's been fascinating for me from the very beginning of all this COVID stuff falling going on that I I have seen that the altars that we worship at are crumbling. When you look at body and sex, you see all of us gaining the COVID-10. I wish I hadn't gotten my haircut because I could show off my quarantine haircut that many of you all still have. 
We see our celebrities not in their makeup because they have to film from home. When you look at big business, you see that our economy is failing, unemployment is on the rise. Entertainment, our movie theaters are shut, but at least there's Disney Plus. Thank God for Hamilton. Politics, no comment. Sports, our stadiums are empty, and even when we are playing sports, they're still empty. Science and technology, I feel like the hope that we have in the progress of technology wanes day by day in the face of COVID-19. Am I suggesting that we are in a modern-day version of the Ten Plagues? Here's what I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting that you pick up your picket sign that says the rapture is coming and stand in the corner. I'm not suggesting that you ban sports and stop wearing makeup and join a commune. I'm not suggesting that you leave culture entirely. But here's what I am suggesting. I am wondering if God really is doing something right now that should make us question the altars that we worship at, that should make us rethink what our normal is and should be, and if that is serving us well. So what is a follower of Jesus to do? Join the exodus. Join the exodus. Remember what I said earlier, that the normal mode of a follower of Jesus is to be a person on an exodus, to be, be between two worlds, to be on a journey towards the promised land. And that's where I think we should be. We should look at our culture not from a place of assimilation, of, of just accepting all that is as if it were right and normal, but really to judge it by the king and his kingdom. And I propose something really concrete as a way of doing that, as a way of joining the Exodus. And it is simply this. Quit social media. Get off Facebook. Delete your Twitter app. Throw Instagram in the trash can. Get off of YouTube. All of those things. Get off of social media to join the Exodus, at least for a week. And I mean this so seriously that actually Chapel Hill is going to be closing down our social media account for the next week. And I'm going to propose this as a way of joining the Exodus for two reasons. The first is, if we really have these altars that we worship at, then the sanctuary that we sing their praises is probably social media. If you look at any of your feeds on social media, you're going to see things like body and sex, politics, sports, Entertainment, all those altars I just mentioned are there on social media. No wonder studies have shown that the longer that you are on social media, the more miserable you get. That's real. And speaking of that, by the way, studies have also shown how many hours, yes, hours that people spend on social media. Just in 2020, the 3.5 billion people on social media networks across the world, on average, spend two and a half hours a day on social media. So if you quit social media this week, you get back in your life, on average, statistically speaking, 17 and a half hours of your week. 
What if you took 15 minutes of those 17 and a half hours to think about what you worship? I've created a handout, actually, that you can use to to think through your own life and what you spend your time, your money, and your speech on, and to consider whether one of these six altars are altars that you worship at. So I encourage you to look this hand up handout up. It's in the description on the video below. It's also on our app if you look it up on there. And it'll be the last post that we post today on social media for the next week. Join the exodus. Be a part of God's people. Consider what it means to be in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. Is God doing something in our time to shake us up, to make us reconsider what is normal? I hope so. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Lord, open our eyes. Reveal to us what may have captured our hearts, what may be pulling us away from you, the I am that I am, the source of all that is good, and right in this world. Lord, our hearts are deceitful, it says in Jeremiah. So Lord, speak truth into us. Help us to live a way of life that is not hypocritical, but Lord, that is aligned to you. And so Lord, for this week, I pray, give us wisdom. Help us to embark upon this challenge to get off of social media. And Lord, may that give us the time to reflect, to repent if need be, and to be joined to you. And I pray that you do something in these times. As much as we struggle, as much as it is a challenge, I pray that there is a renewing work going on in our hearts, in our church, and in our country. Lord, may it be so. May be we, be we be willing participants in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.